The way we use energy is changing. As electric heat pumps and electric vehicles become more popular, and as the government tries to phase out fossil fuels to reach its net zero target, some estimate that our electricity demand will increase by 50% by 2035. But can our energy system take that strain? To answer this question on this special podcast from The Spectator, I'm joined by a fantastic panel. Andrew Bowie is the Minister for Networks at the Department for Energy Security and Net Zero and has been the MP for West Aberdeenshire and Kincardine in Scotland's oil and gas producing region since 2017. Sadita Helm is Professor of Economic Policy at the University of Oxford. In 2017, he undertook for the government an independent review of how to reduce costs in our energy system. His most recent book is called Net Zero, How We Stop Causing Climate Change. Flea Lawton is Head of Policy and Public Affairs at Smart Energy GB, a non-profit trying to raise awareness of smart meters. They're kindly sponsoring this podcast today. And finally, Anna Moss, who's a senior consultant at Cornwall Insight, which is an energy consultancy. And I'm Cindy Yu, The Spectator's assistant editor. Thank you all for joining this podcast. Now, the grid is central to managing changes in the way we use energy. It's a network that carries power from the plant to our homes, through transformers and pylons and into our neighbourhoods. Most of us flick a switch and we don't think much about what has to happen for the lights to actually turn on. But if we're going to be using more electricity to charge cars or to heat our homes, the grid needs to be able to cope with it. Dita, I wonder if I can start with you and ask you to give us an explanation of how the grid actually works and tell us what you think are the challenges facing it. Well, the way in which we get our electricity depends on the core network that's out there. It's the pylons, it's the local distribution networks, and they are the essential backbones of our energy system. If they don't work, if they're not up to the job, then everything else fails. You know, you can have as many wind turbines as you like, you can have as many solar panels, you can have as many electric cars as you like, but unless the network is in place, then it ain't going to work. And it's incredibly important to bear in mind that we are in the process of switching from a highly centralised set of networks which were providing the basic energy services and taking electricity from big coal, nuclear and gas power stations to a system where we've got decentralised, disaggregated, low energy density, intermittent renewables on our system. And that requires a whole new approach to the way in which the grid and the networks are built and developed, a process which is not in place. And with that, the use of the smart data we now have, the smart meters, uh, all that new technology, which enables you and me not just to receive electricity, but be active parts in the electricity system going forward. So without this, nothing. I think that's really interesting because... As consumers, Cindy, as you said, we don't understand how electricity comes to our homes. The majority of us don't know. We just expect to be able to turn the lights on and that be there. But our energy system is changing, as Dita said, and it is becoming more complicated. So it's really important from a consumer's perspective that we start to understand a bit more about this, that we start to become a bit more energy literate 
and to start to have more visibility over our energy as well. And, and the data from smart meters absolutely contributes to all of that. But things are changing and consumers need to have support to get through that as well. Yeah, I mean, in preparing for this podcast, I was shocked to see that we were going from around dozens of coal and nuclear stations feeding into the grid to around over a million renewable generators. So clearly the challenge is changing. And Flo, we'll get to how smart can help shortly. But Anna, just to paint a bit more of a picture of the future challenges coming down the line as well, because we're transitioning to ever more electrification anyway, aren't we, with more EVs, electric vehicles, heat pumps, things which require more electricity, whereas before they used different types of fuel. So that can't be good when the grid is already struggling with this transition. Exactly. It's a really exciting time to see this shift away from using lots of gas to the decarbonisation process. And we will see a big change in demand. So that huge shift away from gas usage, but we'll also see a big upswing in electricity demand. Some of the scenario work that National Grid has run suggests that for electric vehicles, we'd be adding around 40 to 90 terawatt hours by 2035. And to put that in context, the upper end of that band is roughly what uh, households use in electricity each year. So it's quite a big increase If you think about the times when you might want to charge your electric vehicle, you maybe go out to work every day, you come home and you plug it in. That's probably going to hit the peak demand period, that five till seven time. So what we're looking at now is ways that we can manage that additional consumption from things like electric vehicles and from heat pumps. One of the ways we might be able to do that through a time of use tariff. So it's a tariff that's a bit like, I suppose, a peak and off-peak train ticket. So you're charged a higher price to use electricity at times when demand is really high on the network. But equally, you're rewarded for shifting your consumption then into times of lower demand. And so in practice, it means you might face a much lower bill by moving some of your EV charging later in the day. The time of use tariffs are voluntary, though. You don't have to move on to it. But if you do want one, you will need to have a smart meter to be able to access it because that shows how much you're using at different times in the day. And it also gives suppliers a lot more information to be able to construct those kind of tariffs, too. Of course, if it doesn't work out for customers, they can move back to a typical tariff as well. But again, it's one way we can manage that huge change in peak demand that would come from some of those additional technologies. And Flair, Anna mentioned that's one way in which the consumer can change their behaviour to help the grid adapt. But am I right in thinking that smart meters can also give the national grid feedback on how energy is being used? And that actually allows a closer tracking of the data, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. So smart meters provide near real time information about our electricity use. And that's really important. I mean, from the consumer perspective, obviously, you've got the fact that your meter readings are going direct to your supplier, you get an accurate bill, you also get a screen that gives you visibility over your energy and and allows you to make those decisions in your home. But sort of from a network perspective as well, it's really important in understanding when and where people are using energy. Are there issues around that energy? Are there power outages? Where can the network actually direct resources to make sure that that balancing that needs to happen on the grid is happening? and that energy is getting to the right place and that they can target resources to ensuring that that's happening. There's also around supporting local power networks as well. So the point that smart meter data can actually support 
local distribution operators to to understand the voltages going to each home. You know, there's the rate of voltage and, and as we use more low carbon tech, that changes. And so that information for network operators is really useful. It saves them having to go out and manually or physically check sites. They can do this remotely by smart meter data as well. So it keeps your local energy system working more efficiently. It, it saves on wastage and sorts out any problems much faster as well. So there are benefits sort of both sides. And what we're seeing coming forward with the data from smart meters is more innovation coming forward from that as well, both to benefit the consumer and to benefit the network side. So that data is critically important going forward. Fleer, just one follow-up on that, because you mentioned balancing. What do you mean by balancing when we talk about the grid? So in very layman's terms, because I'm not an expert on the grid, but it's making sure that the right amount of energy is going to the right places, that you're not overshooting the mark or, or undershooting. So it's really important that we do that. And that, that's the whole energy system, isn't it? It's getting from generation, it's getting through the grid and getting to our homes and making sure that that is done effectively so that when I turn the lights on, they come on. And I, as a consumer, don't don't think about that. I don't have to think about that. But it is becoming more important. I think the energy crisis has made all of us more aware of how and when we're using our energy. And that, that point about, you know, being more energy literate, being, being able to understand actually how we're using energy, the difference that makes to our system and how we can become active participants in that is really important. And it is one that we need to look at now and, and make sure that people do understand how to use their energy effectively. Uh, so there's a really interesting example of smart meters helping grid balancing over the last kind of winter period. National Grid, the system operator, apply through the, the winter time. So while they might take lots of different actions, they'll turn up generators. This winter, they've also engage with consumers directly to turn down your consumption. So people have received notifications if they're signed up to the scheme and they have a participating supplier and a smart meter, and they, they get notification in advance to use less energy over a particular time period. So it's a really good example of how National Grid is, is taking that information and using it to support the security of supply through the peak winter periods. And Andrew, we started by talking about how the grid isn't often on consumers' minds when we are using electricity. I mean, it just happens behind the background. It's almost like magic. Um, so the government also isn't talking about the grid much, at least from my perspective. I don't really hear the government talking about the grid. It's not exactly one of those sexy topics. Um, but what is the government doing about... <laughs> Well, yes, let's, let's agree to disagree. <laughs> but Andrew, what is the government doing about updating the grid for all of these challenges that we've just outlined? Is smart technology part of it? Uh, is there more going on? Yeah, 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 of course, it's smart technology is part of it. But I mean, like everybody's been saying so far in the conversation, we're expecting a fourfold increase in demand on the grid over the next few years. The grid is in no way in a position to be able to cope with that as we sit here right now, which is why we've commissioned Nick Windsor to conduct his review into planning and consenting so we can get the work on the ground at pace that we need to, to get that masses of power that's being generated off our coastline. And we hope from our new nuclear facilities and other sources of energy that will come on stream and be developed over the next few years that I'm sure that some people haven't even thought of yet, getting it around the country into people's homes and into people's businesses. There's absolutely no point in having the five biggest offshore wind farms in the world off our coastline if we can't get the power that's generated off there onto land and into the grid. But right now, the grid wouldn't be able to cope with it if we plugged all of that, that power generation in. So there's a lot of work going on. Yes, smart technology to be able to balance the demand. But a lot of it is actually going to be building new infrastructure. And of course, that comes with challenges. There's local planning and consenting 
mechanisms that need to be jumped through. You need to take communities with you, which is why we've launched our new consultation on community benefits for those communities that will be having to host a lot of this new infrastructure. There's a lot going on. I spend a lot of my day talking about it and dealing with it. And I think it's one of the most sexy things you could be doing in government. Didn't mean to offend you, Andrew. <laughs> and Dieter, you know, with your professor hat on, how would you mark the government's homework on this one so far? Well, if we stand back from all of this and put aside for a moment whether consumers need to do all this stuff or whether, like my car, it's much more sophisticated and technical, but I just don't want to know what goes on the bonnet. I just want it done for me. Put that aside for a moment. Let's stand back and say, what's the question to which all this lot is supposed to be the answer? Okay, And so we have a target within, what, 13 years, 12 years to get the entirety of the electricity system to net zero. And the Labour Party has a policy of doing it in six or seven years. Okay, So once you stand back and think about the world in 2035 and you work out how the hell you get from here to there, you realise that if that's what you want to do, you have an enormous mountain to climb. And not only do you have a mountain to climb, you have to convince everybody in that climbing expedition that the other bits are going to be done. What's the point of building electric cars if the charging network's not going to be there? What's the point of doing the charging network if the uh, distribution networks are just not up to the job? What's the point of putting solar panels on your roof if the network can't join you for months? or want to charge you, you know, five, six thousand pounds to connect your heat pump to their systems, etc. So the whole lot has to be an integrated process. And it is an investment program on a scale not seen since the swap from peacetime economy to wartime economy in the 1930s. And what's the chance of getting from here to there? Well, I would put it at quite close to zero on current policies. That's not to criticise the policies, and not to say people aren't trying, but if that's your objective, it's absolutely critical that everybody believes you're going to achieve it because that everybody's going to do their bit. And it's great to have a review of what the grid needs to be done to do, right? We've got 13 years to go, right? And you need a supply chain. You need all those engineers. You need all the people to put the wires up. You need training yeah. systems. You need universities. You need technical schools. You know, and, and all of that is what's required. And it isn't enough to have loads of strategies for everything. It's not enough to have all the reviews. Those are necessary conditions. The sufficient condition is it all adds up. And I'm afraid I conclude that it doesn't yet. And I'm really worried that then it falls to bits because the charging network isn't there. So people don't buy electric cars. Right. You know, they've got range anxiety. You know, the heat pumps, that's great. Have you thought through how the networks deal with all that lot? And, and I frankly think, well, because we started with networks, the distribution networks are miles from fit from purpose. They have, like the water companies, been the subject of enormous financial engineering. They have been extremely profitable. They are not well maintained. The capital maintenance hasn't been done. And just to catch up to get these things in a fit state for the current tasks is, in my view, enormous. So all power to the wheel for our government and our politicians in taking this stuff forward, but have no doubt uh, and don't have any complacency about how the hell you do that in 13 years in this country. 
Andrew, I'm going to let you have a right of reply in just a minute, but just just follow up on what Dita, just can I ask you one more question, which is just, this is a Spectator podcast. Do you think that part of the problem with the gap between the infrastructure and the desire to get to net zero comes because net zero has been such a top-down directive so far? It hasn't come because the market or consumers or companies themselves are driving forward with the change, but because it's a political top-down directive so far. And it's great, of course, that politicians are talking about climate change, uh, but this target, everything that to do with it is not matching with where people, consumers, companies, infrastructure builders are at. Or was that unfair? Well, it's a fundamental issue here, which is we've all been told that this is a, you know, almost a free lunch. It's all going to be much cheaper. Of course, the marginal cost of wind is zero, but that's not the average cost. That's not the infrastructure cost. And the scale of the rec- subsidies required indicate that this is expensive, very necessary, very important net zero, but it's not going to be cheap. And if it was cheap and if, you know, renewables were the cheapest form of generation at the moment, they should be outside Parliament with placards saying end subsidies now. They're not, right? They need the subsidies to get them there. It's going to cost. And that comes back to the fundamentals. You need to tell us, the public, that this isn't a free ride. It's going to cost us. It's important we do it. It's a bit more blood, sweat and tears than a kind of free ride to utopia. And as regards top-down versus bottom-up, Governments fail in all sorts of stuff. We all know the liturgy of big projects that governments have mucked up. And you just have to look at HS2 and its history to see how badly these things can be done. But we don't have an option. We don't have a choice. Why? Because it's 13 years. You don't say, we need a wartime economy in 1940-41. Tell you what, let's see if the private sector can innovate and think of great ideas to do that. And let's use market prices. You know, it was absolutely existential, right? We had to do it. We had to have planning to do that. We don't have a tradition of planning our energy sector since privatisation. In fact, we have the absolute opposite. The aim was to leave the networks to the servants of anyone who wanted to do anything, right? Well, you need to invest in those networks. You need to invest in advance and you need to change the regulatory regimes to do that. So I think this is going to be very costly, I think it's incredibly important we do it. I think that if you've got so little time left, having wasted the last 10 years mucking about and coming up with all these documents, and it's another 2,000 pages we had yesterday, right? We don't need 2,000 pages. We need action and a coherent, integrated plan to drive towards this conclusion. And that's why I conclude that if we go on like this, we're not going to get there. And then I conclude that if I was an investor looking at my bit that fits in this frame, I've got to put in my mind, so is my investment a good idea in this charging bit or whatever, if the system isn't net zero at the end of it? That's the dangerous bit. And that's the bit that needs to be joined up if we're to get to this target, which is incredibly important that we do. Andrew, quite a gauntlet's been laid down. It certainly has. Look, I don't, I don't dispute for a minute that this isn't ambitious. Of course it's ambitious. But the idea that we're not taking action now and just producing pamphlets or plans or reports, 2,000-page reports, is, I'm afraid, uh, just simply not the case. We are taking action now. The idea that, that we're not already look at we're creating the future systems operator to be able to coordinate a lot of industry so we can get the grid in the place we need to be. Nick Windsor, his interim review last week, I chaired a roundtable on Downing Street and 
every single person around that room, from the distribution operators to offshore wind champions to PowerGen, they were they were absolutely united in driving this forward at pace. And there's so much we can do in the interim whilst we wait for the final report from Nick Windsor's consultation to actually be published. He wants to have the time of connections. He wants to make the process simpler for people that get into the queue to get connected to the grid to actually come out of it. Because one of the absurdities we have right now is that companies or individuals or organizations can join the queue to get connected to the grid, but they cannot leave unless they pay a hefty sum for the privilege, which bungs up the entire system and doesn't allow us to move forward at pace with what we need to do. So we're going to be changing that as well. Yeah, it's 12, 13 years away, but we have taken a lot of action so far. Let's not forget it was only 2019. Legislat- net zero legislation was passed into law. We have done so much in a very short period of time, and we are going to be going uh, much further in the very near future. Our actions will match our ambitions. I do hear what Dieter says about needing a plan for industry, for government. Uh, that is coming, and we will be working to that plan. But you know, I spent yesterday speaking to private investors and to industry. A plan was, yes, absolutely what they were asking for, but they are absolutely excited in the investment opportunities in new clean green technologies and the developments we're going to be making on the grid in the UK or in GB, should I, I should say, uh, to ensure that we get to where we want to be in, in 12, 13 years time. I didn't say you weren't doing stuff. Quite the contrary. I simply said that it isn't sufficient and it isn't integrated sufficiently yet. And yeah. with 13 years to go, The question for every investor is not whether they can make money out of this. I'm sure people are terribly enthusiastic about this. There are loads of opportunities. The question is, can you rely on all the bits fitting together to meet the outcome? So if you go up into, if you take your Spitfires up into the Battle of Britain, right, and most of them are there, but you just haven't sorted out the parts properly, it won't work. This is an enormous challenge. And all my point is to say that when I read through the 2,000 pages, and I've nearly finished, actually, it's a long night, right? Um, (laughs) When I get through 2,000 pages at the end, I say, so does this fit together? Where is the overall integrated command position for this framework? And, you know, you've got an FSO. That's a great step forward. I set that out in the cost of energy review. You've got a market reform program underway. But, you know, it's going to take another couple of years, right? And basically, time is the the absolute essence here. And that's why I doubt that we are yet in a position that we have an integrated plan which gives us much confidence that in 235, let alone Labour's 230, which I think is absurd, is actually going to be achieved. And it matters to everyone that everybody believes that all the other parts are going to be put in place because this is an integrated system, not a series of discrete projects. Yeah. On integration, you're absolutely right. We are not there yet. I completely agree. And that's one of my tasks over the next few months is to bring all these parties together so we get an integrated plan so we can move forward and start implementing some of the fantastic ideas and opportunities that we have, but that will wake, as you say, unless they come together as one, then we're going to fail the first hurdle and actually delivering any of this stuff. Fleur, let me bring you in here, because when we're talking about timelines, Smart Energy GB has done a great job at bringing smart meters to the forefront of consumers' minds. At the same time, the rollout has faced numerous delays since it was initially started in 2016. So as good as the technology is, I mean, you're behind schedule, aren't you, when it comes to actually getting that technology to everyone? I mean, I've got a smart meter and it actually just has gone dead. So (laughs) it seems like this problem repeated across the country. So the rollout itself is over halfway. 
the figures we've seen this week, we're over 55% of the way now, which is incredibly important. This is a massive infrastructure project, which is getting to homes and businesses across Great Britain. And it is really important that people do say yes to having the smart meter and smart NGGB's role within that is ensuring that consumers understand the benefits of smart metering. And, you know, we are seeing those new innovations coming forward that are persuading people that they do want to get smart meters more and more. And the energy crisis has again focused minds on that understanding of energy being absolutely critical to this. I think one of the key things and and sort of what Dita was saying just now about people needing to understand what is happening with the energy system is absolutely critical. And we need to learn the lessons from the smart meter rollout and the consumer engagement campaign in particular and understand actually how do we take this forward with, with new technologies as well? Because we are going to have to change the way that we use energy. We are going to change the way that we heat our homes, uh, that, that we drive our cars and so on. And so it is really important that we take consumers on that journey with us and how we get those messages out to them are really important. So learning those lessons and understanding where we've been is really important. But the smart meter roller is pushing ahead. Yes, it is, it is a challenge, but it is a challenge that government and the suppliers are working towards and engaging communities across Great Britain to take part in that. Anna, is there an energy security angle to this as well, in which if we can get all of this stuff working properly, actually something like the threat of Russia's invasion of Ukraine that we've seen over the last 12 months wouldn't be such a problem in future if we could just you know, distribute energy in the most efficient way possible? Yeah, I suppose there's a few angles to that. One is that generally if we're using less electricity, less gas, we're needing to import less as well. We, we use gas to generate electricity as well as using it in our, our homes for heating. And, and cooking. You can see on your smart meter how much electricity you're using, for instance, in a kind of almost real time view. So if we manage to re- reduce our consumption, we're also becoming less reliant on, I suppose, larger generation sources. And, and some of that comes from imports. Equally, we've talked about that change in peak demand, and we typically use fossil fuels. Um, so again, lots of gas to generate electricity at times when consumption is highest on our energy network. So if we can reduce what we're using at peak times, and, and this comes back a little bit both to reducing consumption, but also things like time of use tariffs and this demand flexibility service as well, we can be rewarded for moving our energy out of those times. And it also supports our energy security. Andrew, talking to people about demand management or reducing demand isn't exactly a conservative talking point. You know, we, as conservatives, you don't seem to like to say to people you have to sacrifice the way that you live. So is that the kind of trade off that we're looking at at the moment? How is your government going to get that message out? Well, firstly, just very, very quickly on the energy security piece, absolutely is key to what we're talking about here. The, you know, the reason that energy prices for the vast majority of people have skyrocketed over the last months of last year and into the through the winter was because of the high international gas price, which is caused by uh, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, amongst other things. And so that is why we need to wean ourselves off expensive and uh, dramatically fluctuating prices of fossil fuels. And so that's why we need to see a drive towards lower carbon energy production. And that is why one of the reasons we're determined to move to a more uh, a more carbon neutral future and our, why our net zero ambitions are not just good for the future of the planet or for driving down our CO2 emissions, but actually also 
for energy security reasons. And that's why it skyrocketed up the importance level in terms of what people are thinking about on a day-to-day basis. In terms of uh, what you say, in terms of reducing demand, look, it's just sensible. What we want to do is to inform people that they can keep their bills down and help us in this journey, this national endeavour towards reducing our emissions if they take sensible small actions such as turning off a light in a room they're not in or turning off the TV if they're going out of the room for a while or or using less power in, in, in various aspects of their lives. That's just sensible government to help educate and inform people. And, and actually, through smart meters, they're able to see what they're using on a real-time basis, which I think is really... When, when people actually have in front of them the, the amount of money that they are saving through just turning off a few appliances that are not being used for hours on end, then I think it's a really important thing. It, it's not not conservative to do that. It's just eminently sensible. And that's what we're doing right now. Although, Flair, I have seen reporting saying that actually, especially for some older and more vulnerable groups, more concerned and prone to looking at the ticking numbers as you go, that actually it leads to certain concerns over just how much they're using on energy. If you can see all the time how much you're using on energy, it's actually quite a nerve-wracking thing to have. Is that something that you're worried about? It's a really interesting one. And what we do say to people, if you are worried about your energy, then absolutely speak to someone who can help you with that. So there are people like Citizens Advice or National Energy Action who can absolutely give you advice around that. The other thing to say is that the smart meter is your actual gas and electricity meter. That is the smart thing. That is talking to your supplier. That is telling them how much energy you're using, ensuring you're getting accurate bills. The screen, you can turn off. It doesn't affect your smart meter. So if you are worrying about it, then absolutely you can turn that off. But actually, the studies we've done is that people are finding their screen more and more useful in terms of understanding energy and in terms of feeling more in control so that you're not ending up with a bill coming onto the mat in three months time that you just don't know what that's going to be. Actually being able to be a bit more in control, a bit more prepared for that is really important to people. So, you know, there are there are mixed pictures around this. I think ultimately going forward... As a nation, we need to become more energy literate. You don't go to a garage and fill your car with petrol without knowing how much it's going to cost. You don't do your food shopping without knowing how much it's going to cost. So why do we think that actually using energy in that way is still appropriate? So I think there is an education piece here. There is a a supportive piece here as well in terms of helping people to understand how we use our energy and how that's going to change in the future. You know, what we need to do around that as well. And finally, everyone, I just want to get all of your thoughts on this. You know, we've touched on the challenges to the grid now and in the future. We touched on some of the solutions. Dito gave us his very critical professor's homework marking there. But for you, what do you think is the biggest challenge that we still have to overcome in getting to that more dynamic future where the grid is able to fully effectively get energy to everyone's homes despite a changing landscape in terms of energy generators? And what do you think is the biggest challenge that we still have to overcome? Anna, maybe you can start. Sure. I suppose there's a huge way to go in terms of the volume of renewable energy you will have installed across the country to meet some of those net zero targets. But if we're, we're looking on the consumer side as well, it's there's a really exciting opportunity in automation. You know, we've talked about this kind of demand response and, and it, it sounds like we're all kind of very actively involved and taking lots of actions. And that's exciting. As you said, people are much more engaged with energy right now than they ever have been probably. But if we look forwards, there's maybe a step beyond that where you're not plugging in and and actively controlling your EV smart charger all the time. It's taking all these actions for you. It's automating things around a kind of set framework that you've put in place with what what you're happy with. So there's this kind of next step, I think, of in the energy world where 
consumers are seeing lots of the benefits. We're seeing the benefits of shifting our energy consumption around at different times of day. And we're taking advantage of lots of the renewable energy that's being produced through the, the middle of the day, say from solar and from wind generation. But we're not all physically there pressing buttons to make that happen. It's it's kind of happening in the background and no one's really needing to think about it too much. Yeah. So if there was anything that was going to keep me up at night and there isn't, I sleep quite well. But if there was anything, it's the planning and consenting issue that we have to actually get the grid infrastructure built and in place in time for this huge increase in demand that we're going to have on it in the next few years. You know, an average connection time of 14 years for projects to plug into the grid is frankly appalling. And we need to work at pace to cut that down and we've got an ambition to do that by half for most projects and more if we can. And we also need to work out how we are going to bring communities with us because there are communities that are going to be uh, disrupted That is that without question uh, with the new infrastructure that we're going to have to build to get the power that's being generated in new locations across the country onto GB and in and around the grid. So that is probably the biggest challenge I think that we have as a country, planning and consenting and taking uh, communities with us. I do think that the country is almost united on our ambition to actually get to net zero across all generations and all nations and regions. They believe that reducing our carbon footprint as a nation is a good thing. It's just how we best do that whilst taking the country with us, bearing in mind the cost and the disruption that some people might face in that journey. So we've got to mitigate the cost, mitigate the disruption and move planning and consenting forward quickly. Those are the biggest challenges we've got. And so for me, it's picking up that last bit of Andrew's point there around consumers understanding what is happening what do they need to do to do this? Our heating, our transport, our you know, our cooling systems in our home are all changing. And we need to understand how we take consumers with us on that journey. We need to make sure that they are bought into this and that they understand the steps that they can take. And we need, we need to use the learnings that we've had from campaigns like the Smart Meter Rollout to ensure that we get that messaging right, that consumers are taken with us from the beginning and help us to get to net zero ultimately. We've had to let Dito go earlier in the podcast, but that's all we have time for today anyway. So thank you very much, everyone, for joining this special podcast from The Spectator. And thank you for listening at home.